Hi, I'm Druthi Shah and this is my podcast, Have You Thought About? I'm a writer, journalist and poet and I love finding out about what passions and interests people are pursuing, especially if they're blending together these interests in unusual ways. In each edition, I'm going to chat with someone I find particularly interesting and who's been able to fit things together in their life or profession that you might not always think of as an obvious match at first. You're about to hear me chatting with Rafael Weladwaba, who brings together a love of aviation, education and travel. Rafael, we've known each other for a few years after you featured on a project that I was working on about innovators. And you're used to breaking barriers, because after all, you're South Africa's first black female helicopter pilot. You've worked in the police, you've worked on commercial flights. But first, how did you fall in love with aviation and flying? I always get that question a lot. And it's quite an interesting story because there's a traditional way of falling in love with something. And there's a sort of a non-traditional way. And I would like to think mine was non-traditional. Because with aviation, you always hear stories of a young person growing up, looking up the sky or building, you know, small, you know, small model aircraft and, you know, all those things. And that's how they develop the passion. Mine was a little bit different and it was a bit different because of the context where I was coming from. So I was born in a small town. Uh, it's, it's a semi village. We didn't have an airport close by. I've never seen an aeroplane before. I've never seen somebody that looked like me flying. So for me, aviation was never a, a viable career choice for me. So I didn't grow up putting together a small aeroplane or building paper planes per se. So my initial uh, passion, I wanted to become a doctor. I wanted to help people. And that was mainly based as well on the community that I grew up in, where we had really powerful women that were doing all these awesome things. And there was a lady as well that was a doctor in that community. So she was my role model. Those are some of the role models I sort of looked up to. Up until I got introduced into aviation when I was at university. So you can imagine that was like very late in my life that I got introduced into aviation. But because I grew up as a very curious person, a curious child, I always asked questions, you know, read books. I wanted to know about what is it, this industry? It was sort of a lot of things that played a role right at the end when I finished my degree. And I couldn't really go to medical school that I end up in an airline as an air hostess. So you can imagine it's so different from what I have I had initially started doing. And even though like during university, I started being curious and asking questions. And I was on a flight where there was a female pilot and I was like, OK, so there's a room for female pilots, but still not that the one that looks like me in a way. And it was only when I started as an air hostess in, in an airline that it really sort of cemented i think we don't realize some of the passions that we have not because we don't have a passion for for whatever particular because we don't know that something like that exists or it's it's even an option but once it, it started becoming an option i'm like wow i love traveling i like you know i like reading i i like to work with things and this is you know really perfect for me and that's really how you know how i started so mine was a little bit non traditional but i really love the industry and i'm glad um with some of um some of the challenges that happen along the way that sort of not forced me but kind of like direct me into the direction that I am because if it wasn't those challenges because it was challenges that really did that if it wasn't those challenges I wouldn't be where I am so I think it's, it's one of those odd times where I always say hey bring those challenges on because something great is going to you know it's going to come out of it yeah <laughs> you really are fearless and the thing that I really like about you is that you just don't keep your fearlessness or your skills even to yourself because you are a social entrepreneur you founded Girls Fly Africa you've been encouraging girls to get to STEM careers but why is it so important to you to take that fearlessness and encourage others to 
areas that perhaps maybe they're more traditionally steered away from that you didn't realize that you know aviation was necessarily going to be for you as a kid but you're like hey people you can pretty much do anything i remember being at one of the camps in south africa and it was inspiring to see all these young women believing that they could be whatever they wanted to be so why do you keep giving 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 it's also such an interesting question because it's you know sometimes you know we get answers like you know how it makes you feel or how you want to make a world a better place. It has a lot for me to do with my values and how I brought up. So I don't look at it as, you know, I keep on giving. It's actually in me because that's how I, you know, I grew up, you know, I grew up in a community of a lot of women and those women were career women. So I, I really, you know, even though I grew up in poverty, but I had a privilege of growing up among those women. So they were career women. My mother was a teacher. We had a female doctor, but there was something quite interesting as well. They were not only looking after their career, they gave a lot to the community. For example, the doctor had a build a community center to make sure that women in that area have got access to basic health care. She put together some vegetable gardens so women will come and have vegetable gardens, sell them so as a means of looking at themselves. And my mom, my mom taught music, you know, in the community. And none of those, they were not paid. We had a woman that had a crutch to make sure that all those women can do other things so they can drop their kids at the crutch there and can go on to do other things. So I grew up in a community where, you know, women did that. And because of that, it's almost like women are beating each other. And you can see the power of collaboration, the power of community, the power of when women take things in their own hands. So ultimately, I thought, okay, there's a problem because that's what they did. When there was a problem, they they did something to address that problem. If there's a problem of, of poverty, they put gardens there. If there's a problem of daycare, they had a daycare. If there's a problem of healthcare, they put a healthcare center. So that's how I grew up. And it was sort of ingrained in me. So when I was going through my training, I had a lot of challenges. Being one of the first female, it comes with a lot of responsibilities. You literally have to pave, you know, pave a way. But because of that upbringing, I always looked at the challenges like, okay, what can I do about it? Instead of, oh my word, this is like in some, you know, it's so big. That grounding almost not only helped me go through the, the challenges that I had, but also it made sure that when I came after, I went back and I said, okay, what do I do to make sure that these challenges never exist for anybody else that come after me? So I took the aviation you know, community as my own community. How do we make it inclusive as a, as a community? Those women gave me a very beautiful base that I was able to grow up and become a person, you know, a person I am today. And the question is, how do I give other people a similar base to be able to excel to whatever, uh, what you know, what they do? And again, you have a community like that, then you become better uh, as an industry or better as a community. So it was more like something that it was kind of like ingrained in me. It's something that comes. It's one of my value. Community is one of my values. So I knew I had to, you know, I had to do it. I had to inspire. The second thing as well, which was quite important, I wanted to become a doctor because there was a doctor in my community. So seeing people like you doing certain things, it's very important, which brings me to role modeling as well. So as a young person, being a doctor was a non-existent because there was none, there was like not non-existent, but it was something that it's normal. You know, we normalized it. And because we normalized it, I thought it was, it was accessible. So for me, it was quite important that I've reached this, you know, highest or whatever. There's all these titles, you know, but, you know, sometimes the titles, they 
you know, they put you in a pedestal. But it was quite important for me to go back to make sure that I'm accessible to those young people. Because sometimes when we get pedestals, we think, no, I have to now sit on that stage and look down on people. That's not what we did in our community. You go to the people, you work with them. And for me, it was quite important that I become accessible to those to these young people, that I answer their calls, that I'm not, you know, I'm not anywhere on that pedestal. Yes, I might have those titles that comes with what I've done, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm different or I've got a certain level of authority over anybody else. It simply means that I've got certain access that maybe they didn't have and that it's up to me to open that access. And, you know, they can look up to me as much as I looked up to those women in, in those communities. So I think that's why I'm really passionate about, you know, this work. Fantastic. That I, do. <laughs> I do think you are slightly understating yourself. You have multiple fellowships. You are a global leader. Um, and I can see why people's eyes light up when they are in your presence. My eyes light up in your presence. But the other thing I think is really fascinating about you and tapping on what you just said is that you are curious. You are a lifelong learner. I mean, you're studying right now. And what is it that keeps that curiosity going? I love learning. I remember as a young person, I used to just open books, love books, and it just used to keep me keep me going. I like learning about new things, curious about things. When I see that there's a problem that I can't solve, I go to school and research. And it's quite interesting. So at the moment, I'm studying um, inclusive innovation and technology. I went back to actually start looking at it from an academic perspective or whatever I'm doing is because of where we are in South Africa. We're currently struggling from triple challenge, unemployment, poverty, inequality. And I mean, people have done everything that they can and including myself. And I thought to myself, you know what, I've done what I've done, but I'm going to go and study what the, the real issue, get to the bottom of this and just try to understand what are these bigger problems? Because sometimes we just, we solve problem by just, Putting like a band-aid on that uh, problem without really understanding uh, what the issue is. I'm one of those people that understand things through academia. I'm a life learner. I want models and I'm, I'm able to apply them. So I know my strength and I know what my, my strong points are. And I'm using those to actually be able to get something, but also look at how do I then continue impacting, but not on a smaller scale than we've been doing, but on a bigger scale where you start shifting some of those macro challenges that the country has. I know it sounds big and I, I you know when I say it, people smile, but I'm just that crazy where I think, yes, I can solve those issues. For me, that's that's what drives me. And sometimes you need to just be crazy enough to think that you're one of the people that are gonna, you know, solve those, those issues. And that's how we, you know, we move that needle. So I always go into ways, if I can't solve it, I always, you know, try to see how else can I approach a, you know, a certain issue. So by studying, I love studying. So that's something that I do. I thrive when I study i'm happy when i'm studying most importantly what i'm doing as well it might sound crazy but i want to continue solving you know the world's problem but on a major scale now and for me that's an avenue because i love doing what I, i'm doing i love researching i like going to communities and talking to people and academia gives me an opportunity to do exactly that it is tiring but i've realized that when you love doing something and it's meaningful to you it doesn't matter how tired you are you know you make time for it and just extra as well you know we've got 24 hours a day so i did audit on on my 24 hour just to see where do I spend my time? And I realized that we actually do have time. Where do we put our energy? And what type of things do we put, you know, do we put our, you know, sort of our energy? So I had to audit my time. And I found that I actually, it's funny, I actually have time as a student and I had a couple of, to do other things. Because now you have to really, in a way, start planning, start utilizing, maximize and utilizing your time really efficiently. 
and start discussing things that don't really add value to what you're doing every day. You know, we're thinking about things to think about. So doing an audit of your life, of your time, is that something you regularly do? Or this was something actually as part of this inclusive innovation that you're going to sort of try out as a new technique and perhaps do more regularly? It's something that I've started doing like about two years ago. I was always tired. And I was, and in, in aviation, we call it uh, being behind the drag curve. Being behind the tra- drag curve is, you know, the aircraft is ahead of you. So as a pilot, you have to be ahead of the aircraft because you have to anticipate. So we don't want to be behind the drag curve. When you're behind the drag curve, it means that the aircraft is ahead. When the aircraft is ahead, that's trouble. You're not able to anticipate, you're slow to react. As a flight instructor, I have to teach my students to be always ahead of the drag curve. So I used the techniques that I use in the industry in my personal life. How do I make sure that I'm always ahead of the drag curve instead of behind the drag curve? So in the aviation industry, we've got pre-planning. You know, when you go on a flight, there's certain things that you need to do. And at a certain times, you need to do, you have a checklist, right? So you need to do certain things. You need to get, you need to get the weather. You need to get this. And then the phase two, you need to do this. Then you go on to do your pre-flight and you get on. And before you can even start doing a checklist, it's already in your head that after I do this, the checklist comes next or this. And then you learn about emergencies. You've got recall items that are already inherent. Before an emergency can even happen or anything can happen, there are signs, right, that are in the cockpit. A light might come on or all pressure might come down. So those always those signs that help you to be ahead, but you also need to do a certain level of preparation. So when I took at what I've learned from the technical aspect of the industry into my own personal life was how do I make sure that I'm ahead of the of the drag curve? Because it's very comfortable to be ahead of the drag curve. Whenever a challenge comes, you're ready. To, you know, to deal with the challenges because you're ahead. In aviation, when emergency comes, when you're ahead of the drag curve, you're ready because your mind is set in such a way that you are really ahead of the aircraft. So with me, and how do I become ahead of my own life? And in such a way that whenever something comes, I'm actually ready. So I use the same concept. What are the things that I need to do? How do I make sure that I make, I make it easier for myself to be able to carry on things that I do? In terms of the planning. So I, I've got days where on a Sunday I do my pre-planning. And just like when we fly, we we'll always look at the planning. Is it still, does it still apply? Didn't the wind change some variables? You know, I was still getting to the destination. So with my plan as well, I do those checks, you know, it's like traveling from A to B. So I do a plan maybe on a Sunday. And during the week, I keep on going to that plan. Has any of those variables changed? Has anything changed from there that will make it difficult to get to the destination, you know, or make it, you know, be behind what I need to do? So it's there's a lot of check and balances, a bit of those checklists. And really opening up as well my mind and my schedule in such a way that if anything comes, because I'm a way ahead, I'm able to say, okay, how do I then deal with it? I've got space to be able to deal with whatever that I need to deal with. Now, one other thing that we, we always use as well in, in, in aviation, we've got this thing called, it's sort of a silent review. So from a certain time to a certain time, we don't do things that are not important the only thing that we do, it's they're important to the flight, which means we don't chit chat. You know, you and the captain or you and the pilot, there's no chit chatting. Your focus is on that particular flight, on that particular flight, because those times are the times where, according to research, most of the accidents happen. So, which means you need to be fully your mind. So in your personal life as well, you need to have all those, you know, you need to start creating those times. 
where they are silent review. What are the, what is the end goal? What is it that you want to do for this week? Let's say if it's academia, it's that priority. Then you shut down everything, and that's what you focus on. So I'm starting to use some of the techniques that I've learned in the aviation industry, some of the technical things as a pilot that I've learned, and use it in my personal life to make sure that I'm not behind the drag curve, but I'm ahead of the drag curve to be able to solve whatever that comes that wasn't part of the plan, you know, that can shake me or take me away from what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know if it makes sense. This, <laughs> this is amazing. I'm like, where's your book, Rafaelway? Where is the book? I mean, I know you're in book, but I want the book on this now. I'm like, this is a great self-help guide. And it ties in so well with what you're talking about with the academia, with the inclusive innovation, because this is stuff that you know. And actually, this is stuff that resonates so, so well. I'm going to be taking this away and being like, actually, this will hopefully help head towards the comfortable uncomfortable because it seems like that's what you're talking about that's my big thing at the moment is being comfortable in the uncomfortable but you you seem to constantly be there you need to challenge yourself and once you do it a couple of times and you um you get this rewarding feeling of challenging yourself and it starts with small little things i'm going to give you an example and i'm going to be honest i know it's going to sound funny so i had a problem of using chopsticks right so and I'm like, you know what, I can't, for some reason, I'll, you know, pick it up and whatever. And, and, and I was like, oh my word. And to a point where I'll go to a restaurant and not order something that I had to be, you know, because it was very uncomfortable for me to be able to use chopsticks. And one day I'm like, no, man, I'm going to learn how to use chopsticks. So I'm going to actually put time on the side and learn how to use chopsticks. So I went on to YouTube videos. It took me about three hours to actually learn how to use chopsticks. And I'm like, I was scared of something that I haven't even attempted to learn how to do. But the, the weirdest part about that was the moment that I actually got it right, that whole, my whole house, it's like I can use chopsticks. It was such a small thing, but the feeling that you got about, you know, yes, it's a very uncomfortable place because I mean, I can fly aeroplanes, right? Jets and whatever, but I couldn't use chopsticks. That's like two things. And the moment I removed myself and I'm like, I'm going to get into that uncomfortable place and I'm actually going to teach myself how to use this. It doesn't matter how small it is. I'm going to learn how to do it. And I did it. And now I'm actually teaching other people. But what does it say? It says the reason why people don't want to get to that uncomfortable space because they're scared of failure. They're scared of what if it doesn't go as much? What if, or they're scared of what other people would say because they, they don't know we want to do things that we're good at we want to do this that, things that master because we're comfortable in doing that but as well the the rewards the feedback that we get from doing things that comfortable you know we, we think they're much bigger because people are like oh this is so nice because you do it so well that's something that you've done now when you move from the comfortable to uncomfortable it's something that you haven't mastered it's something that you haven't done now we, you know, the fear of now getting negative feedback, because as human beings, we always want to, you know, want to hear positive feedbacks. But what does it do? It prevents you from growing. It prevents you from trying other things. Now I couldn't eat <laughs> things that required chopsticks because I couldn't use chopsticks. And I mean, man, some of those things are quite nice now that I know, you know, how to do it. In a very uncomfortable place, that's where growth takes place. Not growth because you've mastered, growth because you've overcome something that you thought that you wouldn't do. It doesn't matter how small you are. So what I've done as well, like during the year, I've, I've got a list of things that I really want to do, but I'm scared of doing. I'm uncomfortable. I'm embarrassed of telling people 
that I cannot do because as somebody that has done so many things that look difficult, I'm expected to know everything, right? But there's some things like using chopsticks that I couldn't do. So I've, I've written that list and I'm going through that list. So I can, now I show you, I have canceled the chopsticks and there's other few things that are coming after that I need to do. And when we have another conversation, I'll tell you about those, <laughs> those other things that I actually need to do. But the most important things, I give myself time and grace and realizing that this is a new skill. And instead of, and the people, and I'll go to people that actually are good at that. And I'll, I'll say to them, I'm not good at that. And I see that you're good at, can you teach me? And it becomes a fun activity actually so with my friends or some people they are like, oh, you can't do that. Okay, cool. We should do that with you. So I turn something that is very uncomfortable, something fun. And in that way, that negative that you expect from people, it's not there anymore. That's the other thing. But I think one of the most important things as a leader as well, right? It takes courage to move from comfort to uncomfortable. But you also allow other people to be vulnerable enough and say, you know what, I can't do that. And when you start doing that with your teams, when you start doing that with your friends, that's how you grow as friends. That's how you grow as teams because you've allowed them to do that. When they see you as perfect all the time, that's where the problem comes in. But if they know that you actually, there's certain things that you can't do, there's certain places that you're uncomfortable, but you're willing to forego some of those nice things you get when you do things that you're comfortable, then you give other people permission, especially people that look, you know, in a way, look up to you, to, you know, to do those things. Another example I can give you, you know, due to my, obviously the background, you know, English wasn't, you know, our first language. And because of that, I was really too scared to do public speaking, you know, speak in front of people because I'm thinking, oh my word, you know, what are they going to do? Because sometimes we attach language into something being smart. So if you speak a certain way, it means that then you're smart. It's, it was a very uncomfortable place because of all those things, you know, stories that we tell ourselves. And the first thing that, the first time that I, and, but I was, and I have to tell this story, I know it might take a little bit of your time, but the first time I remember at university and I wanted to be part of house committee, you know, because I, I wanted to be a leader, you know, like it was something that is in me. I need to be at that so I can change certain things that I didn't like. But because I was so conscious about speaking and it was so uncomfortable for me due to a whole lot of various factors. And I was at a university where, I mean, I was at the University of Cape Town where people that went to that university they can speak a certain way. They're very assertive. You know, they come out. And I've seen people that were campaigning for those positions. They'll pull up like papers and papers and talk up like Obamas and everyone. So they had all these speeches. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to do that. You know, like I don't even have, I can't even put a paragraph of whatever that I'm going to, you know, that I want to say. Because people that are running for those positions, they've got a whole lot of other things that, you know, that they're going to say. And first year, I was too scared and I didn't do it. In second, I'm like, no, I need to do it uh, because I need to get to those positions. I need to start changing certain things that I don't like. And so in February, I started writing down what I'm going to say in November, like a couple of months. So every month I will write down all those things. And my speech, I did 10, 10 months. I spent writing, you know, so I could stand in front of people in high school, in, in university to say, you need to vote for me, you know, for, <laughs> for house committee. And I practice and I practice. And then comes uh, November where we had to now campaign, get in front of people and I froze, <laughs> you know, all those practices. I remember I froze, but in that freezing as well, I'm like, okay, I need to say something. So I said something, but it wasn't something that was written. It was something that came from my heart. And I was like, I want to be part of the house committee 
this is why you need to vote for me. And this is what I want to do if I, you know, if I'm voted. I mean, I didn't even spend five minutes. I was voted in one of the pe people that got the highest vote ever. So I don't know why they voted me, but it is what it is. And whatever that I had said that I was going to do, like I said to them, the rest that I was at will be the best in sports or something like that. So I became a sports rep and it was the best in sports in the history of, you know, in that year. And for me, that was a lesson as well, where I got out of my comfort zone. I did stand in front of people. I did embarrass myself, but the results were much bigger. And from then on, you couldn't get me off the stage. But this is something else happened. So when I became a pilot and I started going to those rural areas, those young people heard the way I spoke, I spoke like them. And they were scared as well. They're like, we're from rural areas. Our, edu our education system wasn't is not as good. We can't speak English. Therefore, we cannot become a pilot. And I'm like, hell no, that aircraft doesn't care whether you can speak English like me, whatever. You put buttons there, technical. So for, for me, getting out of my comfort zone and really overcoming and understanding that, yes, my background was, was a certain way, but that doesn't stop me from getting to the top of my game. I gave those young people in rural areas that spoke like me, that I had a similar background, a permission to actually say, you know what, we're going to get onto that stage as well. If she can do it and still laugh at herself, we you know the mistakes that she's done and still get to that level where she's at now, why can't we do it? So yes, being uncomfortable can yield amazing results, but can allow other people permission to also get to that space of uncomfort and therefore leading to their own growth as well. So yeah. <laughs> Wow. I mean, I'm literally so awestruck. And then, and it's absolutely amazing. You were traveling, but also not able to travel, you know, when we had the pandemic, you were still maintaining, is it IR stories? I might be pronouncing that incorrectly. So let's make sure we yeah. pronounce it correctly. Tell, tell us a little bit more about how that came about and how you maintain that, because I want to make sure that people see the the beauty through you of what the world is like. Yeah. So it's a suit of words. It means let's go. The name came as a result of, you know, when I was growing up, we had like young people early in the morning, we'll go and call each other and we'll say Arie. And we'll go and create magic, either play in the streets or, you know, go up the mountain and do a lot of stuff. So it, it has a lot of meaning. So it means let's go. So, and, and you know, so there was a lot of obviously negative stories during the pandemic, which is obviously where we are. It, it's what I said, you're going to have those negative stories. And at that time, I had to go back and draw on something that I knew, you know, what are some of the stories that I can tell through, you know, Arie, you know, the stories of, you know, some of the beautiful things in the country and even traveling within the country, some of the beauty of the country and some of the stories, some of the positive, positive stories. Eh? Because as a pilot, I think we were really badly impacted by the pandemic because all aircraft were, you know, they were grounded. And suddenly you lose your identity as what we thought was our, you know, in a way, an identity as a pilot. So, you know, there's no longer that prestige of working through the airports. And so for me, it was a way of what are the other stories that are there? What are our stories? Because our stories are, you know, they, it's not just, a, you know, a single story of just being a pilot. You know, I like, I, I don't know if you, you, you listen to the talk, talk by Chimamanda of uh, the danger of a single story. Right. So yes. we're not just single stories. So I'm just not only a pilot. There's a lot of stories that makes me who I am. And that's what are your stories and my stories, you know, the stories of let's go, of growing up, of the other things that I can, you know, I can do. And I know other people, a friend of mine at some point 
started a vegetable garden because I spoke about, I think on my Facebook or whatever, I spoke about vegetable garden on my area, the stuff that I do, that I did, you know, during the pandemic. And, you know, so, and so, so it was, it was meant to say, yes, this is where we are. And this is where we find ourselves. But this can't be the end of our stories. This can't be the only stories. This can't be the end of it. There's a whole lot of other ways that we can, you know, we can tell our stories. And what I also try as well is to be honest, meaning that when I'm down, I write it down. My frame of mind is somewhere else. I put it down that it's somewhere else. When I, you know, I know at some point I always talk about as well my foundation and how tired it made me. So I put it down that I'm actually tired of the, the work that I was doing. And for me, it was quite important because that's the real story. In the beginning, you were talking about, oh, you're doing all these other things. And when people look, look at you, they're like, oh my word, you know, you can do all these other stories, but people need to realize as well that in that story, you get tired, you get challenged, you get emotional. As well, it was important to make sure that comes out. There's no you know, all the happy stuff only. There's also some of the bumps that I that I go through, some some of the losses as well that that I grow through. So that's that's what it was meant to do. Yeah. The wonderful Rafael Wailadwaba, who is forever curious and brings together innovation, aviation, travel and more. Do you have an interdisciplinary life? Because I would love to hear from you and perhaps we can chat on this podcast that goes with my newsletter, which is called Have You Thought About? and can be found via ww.drutishaw.com. Please join me next time for a fun conversation with another guest who likes to shake up things in their life. Thank you to Rian Shah for the music for this podcast. <laughs>